name is Emily Lynch, and I work at the North Carolina Zoo as Associate Curator of Research. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Rasafari Podcast. Y'all, I'm really stoked that we have a new facility joining the Rasafari Podcast family today, and that is the North Carolina Zoo. And I'm going to be bringing you my uh, very interesting interview with uh, a person who does a lot of really cool research and stuff at the zoo, Dr. Emily Lynch. And uh, Emily became a guest because of my time at the AZA conference, uh, which has just continued to give me many, many cool connections and many people that have been coming to the podcast. Um, But in particular, what I thought was really cool about this situation was that I didn't actually attend the part of the conference that uh, Dr. Lynch was speaking at. I was off doing other things. Uh, You know, there were a lot of different things that you could be at at the same time, and I was doing one of them, and Zoe happened to be at Dr. Lynch's presentation and texted me and was like, oh my goodness, you need to come meet this person and talk to her, and she would be perfect for the podcast. And it turns out that she is, in fact, perfect for the podcast. So uh, we connected after that session, and um, we're finally able to get together and uh, do an interview online, and now I get to bring that to you. So very exciting stuff. Real quick, uh, just a friendly reminder. Make sure that you hit subscribe. Make sure that you're following along at Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Rossafari Pod on TikTok, and um, of course, uh, patreon.com slash Rossafari to support the podcast. So yeah, that's it's really all I have to say. It's a fun, cute little story, and then we get into the good interview. So uh, the fun, cute little story is over. So let's get into my good interview with Dr. Emily Lynch of the North Carolina Zoo. All right. And what the heck is that? <laughs> sure. So, um, yeah, that's a really good question. It it touches on a bunch of different uh, areas of work that we do at the zoo. So, um, so first, I oversee all the internal research that we uh, facilitate. Um, so it's... Um, keeping up on our animal welfare. It's contributing to, we have something called an adaptive management plan where we use, um, we have evidence-based management plans where we use data um, and different types of research to guide our management plans for the animals. Um, So for example, all of our feeding programs, enrichment programs, um, just anything you can think of that we use to take care of the animal uh, should be rooted in uh, evidence. So it facilitates our ability to cater to the needs needs of the individual. Um, you know, like our female lion might have very different needs than our male lion. So instead of just saying like all ma- all lions like this, we can really tailor how we care for our individuals. Um, 
So there's a lot of research that we do within the animals uh, within the zoo um, that's uh, that has internal goals. We also facilitate a lot of research from external researchers that are interested in understanding um, biological questions, conservation questions, things like that, where having access to a polar bear here might be a little bit more useful than having to trek, you know, and find them in the wild. So if you're interested in, you know, how do polar bear, like, how do their kidneys function, that kind of stuff. Like we can collect urine for them and share urine and we can, uh, you know, contribute to a greater scientific, you know, body of work um, for researchers that are interested in these like larger biological questions. Um, and then I also um, do education with uh, younger kids where we have some programs in line where we teach them about different types of research and how you can become involved with um, animal science. Uh, outside of veterinary science. So everyone, you know, you love animals, so you just think that the only pathway to engage with animals is through being becoming a vet. Um, but that's obviously not true. There are lots of other professions out there. So we do things to kind of expand the um, kids' understanding of um, different types of research that you can do to become in, uh, involved with animal behavior. Uh, it's those three different areas. It's internal research, bringing in researchers and facilitating that process, and then education. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. I find the um, the thing that you said about education particularly interesting because um, I so I interview, you know, the vast majority of people I talk to are zookeepers. And oh, okay. um, that's just most of I, I try to reach all different positions at zoos, but there are a yeah. whole lot of keepers out there. Sure. And a whole lot of you doctor types are very busy and hard to pin down on yeah. dates sometimes. <laughs> sure. um, so I talk to a whole lot of keepers. And the number one thing that I hear in the like, what is your history? How did you get here part? is mm -hmm. I liked animals, so I wanted to yeah. become a veterinarian. And yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought that was the only path to the job or to, you know, any animal type thing. And then I found out there were other things. So it's really cool mm -hmm. that you're helping facilitate that. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is really interesting. It didn't occur to me that that was really an issue. But I, I think like probably 90% of the kids that we interact with say just that, that they're just totally unfamiliar with these fields. I, I bet now it's a lot different because there are shows like the Krat Brothers or, you know, um, all of those different nature documentaries where you have the uh, researchers are more accessible, um, you know, like fields conservationists, things like that. So it might be a little different now, but generally everyone just thinks of veterinary medicine. Oh yeah. It's, it's actually, it's funny. So on my, on my podcast, I do a lot of like silly type, like parody songs and stuff like that to keep it light mm -hmm. while we talk about the science. Yeah. And I've actually thought of like coming up with a little jingle, like about the fact, Oh, here's another person who thought you could only be a vet. Cause like, oh, it that's literally, so funny. I would say it happens, yeah. you know, in four episodes, episodes a month that happens two to three times. Literally. Oh, that's it's so interesting. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. So that's, well, that's, that's good very to know cool. That. that makes me feel better about it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So we'll get back to those those three different um, pillars of, of what mm -hmm. you do. But let's start off by talking about you a little bit. How did you okay. get into this field? How did you first know that you liked animals? And like, take me right. through your path. Okay. All right. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so when I was little, I was always really interested in animal behavior and why animals um, do the things that they do. Um, so I was coming at it from more of a, like, psychological background. I was interested. Yeah, so it was more just generally animal behavior. I was really interested in, in um, engaging with animals. I grew up in New York City, so I was fairly isolated from animals. I didn't have a lot of engagement with them. So I tried to seek out opportunities like going to farms. Um, that's pretty much all I had to see animals and be around them. Um, so when I went to college, um, 
I was looking for uh, places that had programs that let you um, obviously explore animal behavior. And um, I became fascinated with uh, anthropology and just it was more human behavior, right? Like, why do humans do the things they do? Why are women wearing blush? Why are, you know, men engaging in groups? Like, what's going on? What's behind that? So I was kind of off on that path for a little bit. But that brought me into primatology because we're obviously primates as well. Um, So then I focused and, and then I, I found that to be more interesting, right? So, like, you have 200 or more species of primates, so you're controlling for evolutionary origin, uh, but you see such diversity, right, in um, social behavior, um, different types of composition, group compositions, and, you know, all the different types of conflict that they engage in. It's so fascinating. So I thought I got very into primatology. So then... Um, I spent, uh, then I went on to get my PhD. So it was a combined master's and PhD program. So I could just knock it all out together um, where I studied um, wild uh, olive baboons in Kenya. And I was looking at um, what drives, it was most, it was particularly looking at the immature. So it was juveniles and subadults. And we were looking at um, how kinship affects their social bonds. So it was, you go in blind and you collect behavioral data. So I was there for two years following all these like little kids around. It was really fun. You got to hang out with, you know, baby monkeys all day long. Um, And then you collect fecal matter while you're out there. And then you come home and you um, do a whole pedigree right? Using uh, the fecals. And um, you figure out who's related to who, and then you can see how social behavior changes depending on relatedness. Um, And it ended up being really, it's a really interesting story, at least I think it is, that when I got there and I had to learn, you know, you show up, these are, it, it was kind of it was a study that had been in place for a while or my advisor had gone out, but there was a break in not long enough that we didn't know who was who. So I had to familiarize myself with all of these little kids. Um, And during that time we would show up in the morning and there would be um, all of our, like a large percentage of our group was like dismembered. There were claw marks in trees, there was fur everywhere. And so the leopards came in and just predated on our group, but it was very cool because they effectively removed half of the parents from the group. Um, So I had this neat little experiment where I got to compare uh, kids who had moms and who didn't have moms and how did they adjust their social bonds. Um, So it ended up being like this neat little natural experiment um, that I got. And it turns out that paternal uh, relatives are way more important than anyone thinks. And we can talk about that more if you're interested in the theory behind it, but it was oh, so definitely. interesting. This is really yeah. cool. Yeah. It was just so interesting. Well, cause when you go, these groups are c- called matrilocal groups. I don't know if that's like a jargony term or if people know that word matrilocal where everyone just kind of hangs out with their mom and their female relatives. Okay. So since people started studying primates since the sixties, everyone just assumed that these maternal relatives are the most important relatives in the social lives of these animals, right? Because you're spending your lives with them. But um, but at the time when I was doing my research, uh, the technology of understanding the genetics behind these animals was very limited, right? So like microsatellite technology and the ability to take fecal matter from the field and carry it back to America to a lab to do the analysis. I mean, it was all very new. Um, so we didn't really understand the relationships between paternal relatives at all. And in the lives of these olive baboons, dads hang out, like they're around. There's not like a high, it's called a reproductive tenure where you like in the Chakma baboons in the South, they're only like around for six months or so, but these guys are around. So you have the opportunity to interact with your dad, with maybe um, your older paternal relatives, things like that. Um, 
but you weren't able to test it. So that so it was really fun to see that when you have, it turned out that when you have a dad in the group, your bonds with your paternal siblings are much stronger or equal strength of your maternal half siblings, which is quite a powerful thing because your maternal half siblings are like life or death for you. Um, if you don't have a sister, like a close maternal sister that you're bonded to, you're probably going to die because you need that social support so badly. Um, but then we're looking at this and it turned out that these paternal relatives are so important so that it just kind of sheds lights on the importance of fathers in these communities, the importance of all these different types of kin that aren't necessarily obvious to the eye. And so from a conservation perspective, it's important because when you're assessing like, what do you need in a group, right? To maintain a healthy social unit, it might be incredibly important, right? To consider paternal kin. Right. So it kind of so I thought that was a really fun and also it's like a fun little mystery that you're solving. Right. Because you don't know. Then you get back to the lab and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was the dad. <laughs> um, so that was really fun. Uh, yeah. And then I did a postdocs uh, for a few years, things like that, where um, I continued to look at um, the effect of kinship on different like life history traits. I did work in Finland. They have this big database on elephant life histories um, based on they have these elephants that do logging work in Myanmar. I don't know if you're familiar, that, familiar with that. Yeah, but, yeah it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And yeah. so they have just these, what are essentially stud books going back centuries. So you have like the birth records, um, what siblings were living with who, how they were transported. And so you have this like incredible, incredibly detailed pedigree um, and transfer information of elephants over multiple generations. Um, so I did research there and found that... Um, so one cool finding is that if you're a young female elephant, you're more likely to have a successful reproductive tenure if you're living with older female sisters. So probably just because you need more support, which seems like really intuitive, but you have to prove it. So um, so then we were able to talk to the government there and recommend that these young females, if you want to breed them, they really need to be around uh, older female sisters. Um, so that was uh, the crux of that work. And then... Um, I've always been interested in zoo work because it seems really fun to have access to all these different types of systems, right? So, like, if I'm interested in monogamy, you can look at gibbons. If you're interested in, you know, polygamy, you can look at, like, a different social system, right? And you can, like, look at different types of evolutionary questions, but you can also just do, you know, straight-up welfare questions. Um, So there's just a lot of potential to do research um, in a zoo and ask, you know, tons of questions because you've got the animals right here. Um, and so I was lucky enough to um, stumble across this opportunity presented to me at the North Carolina Zoo where they were looking for someone to oversee their research program. And that's how I got here. Very cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. I have a question for you just about mm-hmm. the the process of what you're talking about here. So most people that I've talked to, um, especially in the, the research world, like – it's an animal that draws them in. Like, I really want to research chimpanzees or whatever. Sure. And you're sitting here and you're like, so I started off with olive baboons and then we went to (laughs) elephants and stuff. What is it that drives you to pick your, um, you know, your projects and, and what were you, what, what made you interested in such different things? Yeah. So it's not really about the, what's called like the model species. It's more about the the questions, right? And you pick your model based on what fits your uh, question. So I was more interested in evolutionary theory um, and um, specifically about kinship um, and the evolution of kinship and how that affects so- sociality in general and social bonds. Um, and so I started with humans actually, because I found humans to be very interesting when I came into it. Um, and then 
you know, it turned out that primates were so interesting because you can control for evolution in some ways or phylogeny because they're all very closely related. Um, and then uh, the elephant thing just came up because they had this very detailed database. So it's not really about elephants. It's more about, or primates, it's more about what kind of questions can you ask with the animal that you have. Okay. That's really interesting. Do yeah. you have a favorite animal or a couple of favorite species? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I... I feel very connected to the olive baboons because I've just spent so much of my time with them. Um, so I just kind of feel close with them. But here at the zoo, I really like our giraffe. Nice. I really love the giraffe. Just not as like, not for research, but they're just very like nice and calm and pleasant to be with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, giraffe are mm-hmm. amazing. Um, yeah, they are. They're very, beautiful. Very cool animals. I think one of the things that hit me is like I go to a lot of zoos. Obviously, I did before I even started the podcast and and then it has expanded. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think I reached a point where I started to take some of the more common but really cool animals for granted, including mm-hmm. like giraffe because you, you, they're, they're everywhere, you know. Yeah, um, and and when I actually started to get to uh, interact with them and, and feed them and get to to know their individual individuals uh at different zoos and everything um i found myself like falling in love with them all over again because they're yeah. just such cool creatures yeah they are they're beautiful very cool so are you actually i mean i'm sure that you leave to do research and stuff from time to time but are you actually on the grounds of the zoo when you're like working your you know your job so i don't go anywhere i don't tra- travel is not part of my position okay. i'm focusing on the research of these animals here. If we do anything that brings in other institutions, I mean, so I've only been in this position for three years, um, but typically if I'm doing something that requires um, other facilities, I'm using their data. So it's all, they're just sending me their data and I'm doing analyses with it that way. This is a non-travel position. It's just focused on our animals at the zoo. And then if we're doing broader multi-institutional things, it's strictly using their data. Okay. Very cool. And that, that, Mm -hmm. that that, heaven knows you have a lot of animals at the zoo to, uh, to be working on. North Carolina zoo is incredible. Um, yeah, huge so you've been facility. here. Oh yes, I've been twice, and actually, we'll probably oh, wow. be back okay. in March. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, okay, I we'll really love it there. Yeah, definitely. Right. I, it's okay. such a gorgeous place. Um, and so, I, I guess um, you know, you talked about the internal research being focused on welfare, right? Yeah. And I really want to hit that because I think this is the thing that the anti-zoo crowd misses the most. You know, mm-hmm. people assume. I mean, I. <laughs> I've been talking to a, a, a friend recently who is an aquarist, and um, mm-hmm. as we've gotten closer, every single day as we are texting, she yeah. tells me at least once and sometimes multiple times a day, somebody just came up to me and said that our sea turtle's sad because she's alone. Yeah, every they always say that. Every single yeah. day. <laughs> yes. Like, I knew it was a thing, but I didn't realize yeah. it was that big of a thing. Always, yeah, <laughs> always. That's what everyone always says. And also part of my job is to do um, visitor surveys. So, like, it, it's all the different kinds of research that we do, right? So part of the research, right, is a guest experience here at the zoo, right? So we want to use research to understand how the guests are experiencing the zoo and tailor our messaging, um, how we set up our carts, things like that, to the guest, right, to improve, uh, you know, takeaways, um, conservation action, empathy towards wildlife, things like that. Um, and so I'm, I, part of it is just reading, you know, the open-ended questions from that the guests complete. And that's the number one thing is, uh, that a solitary animal feels sad. And that's just because they're unaware of, you know, the needs and social composition of each animal. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think Mm -hmm. I want to talk about what kind of research you're doing and how much we understand how 
well taken care of and happy, if I can use that word, the, the animals are. But right. before we do that, I, I have a question that I've, I've been trying to figure out the answer to for a while. Yeah. And I don't know if you're the right person to ask. And if not, okay. I will just cut this. So no pressure. Okay. Sure. But you are the person I've talked to so far that seems to be the closest to this. Okay. I go to zoos all the time. Yeah. And I regularly hear people who are walking around the zoo who are like the father of a family of five who have paid $120 to get into the zoo, who are yeah. going to spend $200 on lunch and souvenirs. This is not a casual thing, you know. Right. And they are – ranting about the zoo and just oh this and these are all these are all i go to aza accredited zoos i go you know sure. i'm not i'm not going to any tiger king type places right right what do you think is it that causes somebody to go to a zoo to give yeah. hundreds of dollars to a facility and then to completely not educate themselves on anything and walk <laughs> around and like yeah. hate it like it's it's yeah. i don't get it and i'm trying to understand it because i want to try and help fix it yeah yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, why do they hate it? Well, that they're ranting about that it's too hot or No, no, I'm talking very specifically about like like you said, the number one thing that I always hear is a solitary animal, you know, is bad. Or like looking okay. at a primate who is not smiling and being like, oh, it looks sad. But it's right. not sad. It just has downturned lips because that is that type of primate. Or right. even like I've heard people say that like fish look sad and it's yeah. like oh and it's like they're looking okay. for the sadness exhibit to exhibit and i just i just don't get it yeah i don't i think that there's something really i think that you those people are probably i would assume that they're coming for their kids right because the kids want to go um and then it's really hard to not anthropomorphize i think that that's just an inherent thing that is unavoidable and there's probably you know, a failing, you know, there could be some failing on the zoo's part to educate the guests on it. Like maybe the signage isn't good, but also people don't really need, read the signage. They need staff out there talking to them. Um, so maybe there's a miss there. Uh, but why would they go originally spend so much money and then complain about it? I mean, I would just say that they're going for their kids as an activity. Gotcha. Just I guess as, that like, makes something sense. to do. That makes um, sense. And then you get there and then you see like, oh, this animal is contained. You know, there's no way it, it they they need to they're not going to no No one in the public is going to just know, you know, everything that goes on behind the scenes. Right. To enhance the welfare and well-being of these animals or that zoos, the, you know, immense contribution of zoos. Right. To conservation action and engaging people um, with the thoughts of conservation and, and wildlife and creating that kind of empathy. Um that's not something like the average person is going to be aware of. And I think that the that the burden is on AZA to be more vocal about the importance of that. Um, and I think that it's been hard, challenging over the past few years. And then hopefully, you know, all these new initiatives, you were there at the last conference when they rolled out the well-being initiative, that these are things that really have a potential to be publicized more so that people hear about all these things that are going on behind the scenes. But I wouldn't expect anyone to know you know, to know all the stuff that we do or the importance of a zoo. 
That definitely makes sense. That is that is the big goal of my podcast, though, is by That's sharing. That's wonderful. Yeah, by yeah. sharing the individual human stories and also then what is going on at, at the, the facilities. And I always try to get into, you know, the nitty gritty and the stuff that isn't making Facebook or Instagram posts because we have to show the, you know, cute polar bear three times. Um, yeah. Because I just think it's important to share this stuff. I think it's really cool, you know? Yeah. And I heard that this new generation is very critical of zoos. Um, that's coming through college right now because I work with college students quite often um, as research interns and master's students um, and that there is like a lot of skepticism and there's a wealth of information showing how important zoos are, <laughs> you know, to the to the survival of the animal itself, right, as they're acting as an ambassador um, and then also for on the people end, right, that they're more likely to go out and engage in conservation behaviors after going to a zoo or they're less likely to kill a snake after connecting with it somehow. So. It's, you know, so it's wonderful that there are people like you who are getting the word out and talking about the importance of zoos. Um, but I wouldn't, yeah, I just wouldn't expect anyone to just know that. That's fair. That makes sense. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about some of this internal research then. Sure. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm coming in cold here. So just tell me about some of what you've worked on or are working on and what okay. it's showing you about animal welfare and how that continues to improve. Okay, yeah. So, um one hot new topic going on in zoos is uh, is something called giving animals access. I don't okay. know if you're familiar with this after talking to zookeepers so often. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and just, you know, for if anyone's listening, like you have like a bunch of different spaces for your animal, right? You have your outdoor area that on guest view, but then there are lots of other areas for your animal off of guest view that are should be indoors, outdoors, you know, all these different spaces where you can essentially, it's called shifting your animal around all these different areas. And traditionally, animals were locked out on habitat, which means that they would be out on habitat for the guests to see and the doors to their alternate areas would be closed because who would think that this would matter? You know, not a big deal. Why would it matter to give them those areas? Um, and then they're out for guests to see. Um, but carnivores, so recently there are some studies showing that carnivores are animals that have to range over long distances, um, might benefit from seeing far, right? So they may, you may not have to recreate the entire home range for a polar bear, but if you give them the illusion that they have that as an option, it could decrease, you know, any stress behaviors and increase positive behaviors, things like that. So this is a kind of a new area that's coming up. So we did a study um, when I first came on in tw uh, 2020 to 2021, where we looked at our, we've got these two sister black bears, um, Luna and Nova, and they um, they were engaging in some stress behaviors, but not, you know, not too much. But we were just kind of were called in to investigate, like, how can we, you know, improve the daily lives of these bears? Um, so our first the, the first thing that we thought of, well, what's the cheapest, you know, quickest, easiest thing to do? Because I just started and I didn't really know, you know, different types of enrichment to invest in. The first thing we thought of was let's just leave all the doors open. Right. So that they can just see. Um, and so we did that for about a year and it looks as though just having, and this is coming out, this is getting published in the journal of botanical gardens and zoological research. It's coming out, I think next month, um, where the, just providing access decreases any undesired behaviors and increases positive behaviors and also giving them access doesn't seem to affect their visibility to guests it's just simply being able to have that distance and seeing that. And even for our polar bears, we designed a new habitat um, 
that's specifically designed to give them that kind of illusion. And it's by far their favorite place to be. <laughs> they love that habitat. Yeah, because they just want to see it, right? Right. So it's interesting because you think like, oh, zoos, you know, your animal, you can't possibly recreate their home range. Um, but that you may not need that, right? And you can get them to, if they need to have that kind of energy expenditure. You can still get that in a lot of other ways, you know, by, you know, hiding their food around and doing scatter feeds. There are lots of other ways. But it looks as though it's also very important to give that sort of visual illusion. So that was one study that um, that just came out um, that I think will that was useful for improving the welfare of the animals. Other things we do, um, let's see, like we monitor um, how they use their space is really important, right? So we want to make sure that they're using all the different areas in their habitat. So um, so we do some space use studies to see, well, do they need more shade? Right? Are they using the shade that they have effectively? Um, are there any parts of their habitat that they, it seems like they're avoiding? So those are some studies that we've done with our elephants, chimps, zebras, and Arctic foxes. Um, so we did four, four different habitats. Um, and just to see... Uh, if there are anything that if there's anything that needs to be addressed, everything kind of came up that everyone is using their habitat just fine. Um, but it was a really great study to to kind of confirm that everyone's using their space appropriately. Um, and let's see what other welfare studies. Oh, we had one with our lion. Um, uh, our lioness, Makita, um, we found that she uh, was pacing a little bit in the afternoon. So, again, you have a carnivore that's pacing. Um, very typical for carnivores. Um so what was the issue there? We had the keeper team flip a die um, every day uh, to determine the time when she gets her dinner. So she never knew when her dinner was coming. And that reduced her pacing by about like 25%. Oh, wow. Um, so just introducing unpredictability into their into their day. Um, and, you know, you've talked with keepers. Their schedule is so rigorous and you know, they're always, you know, you could always use more staff, you know, it's a very hard job. But if you just kind of shake up the day, right? So these are like very low cost, easy to do things for keepers to do to improve the lives and welfare of their animals. So that was something else. So we were able to show, right, using, you know, rigorous data collection, that if you change her feeding schedule, right, you have some benefits where she, we want lions to sleep a lot. So she slept more and she paced less, things like that. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it yeah. seems like from what I've seen that animals have a certain sense of um, like a natural sense of time a little bit. And so, you know, I've seen that even towards the end of the day, you see different, you know, animals oh, sure. lining up at the doors or whatever lots of cues. Yeah, 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 there's really tons of cues going on. Like they can hear their keepers, they can smell their keepers, you know, there's lots of things going on. So I think just giving them some un and so, but I mean, some animals thrive with predictability. Um, and it's a nice thing for them, but I think that that's why it's nice that we're able to bring in, um, research interns, right. To help us so we can really tailor our care plans for all our animals. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And that's actually something I I'm curious about with this. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time reading about animals, shockingly, mm -hmm. yeah. and I feel like so many things are, you know, species specific in what you end up reading. So it's like yeah. lions will do this and, sure. you know, whatever. Um, but how much of your focus is on that versus how much is on each individual animal? And then does that affect, um, you know, what you're able to share and what you're able to to publish yeah. and how That's it impacts other places? Yeah, that's such a good question. That's like the, yeah, that's, that's an issue. So I think generally 
what I focus on and what I think my supervisors want me to focus on is the individual, right? Because we are just most concerned about making sure that all of these individuals, right, are as cared for as possible, exhibiting the best welfare, you know, possible. So we're not interested in lions. We're interested in Makita and making sure that she has an incredible life, right? And that everything she's doing is exactly what we want her to be doing. Um, So that's our first concern. So that's, it could be published as a case study, but publishing is not the number one thing. It's to make sure that she is thriving. Um, then the second level is, yeah, publishing would be great, right? Because that's the, how you communicate to other facilities. That's how you communicate to other researchers so that they might see this and say, oh, that's a great idea. Maybe we can do that, right? So with those black bears that ended up getting published as a case study, right? Because we only have two individuals, but then we can show, hey, maybe if you give your bears access you might see, you know, better behaviors that you want to see, things like that. So then that's kind of the second level. And then the third ultimate level is to do, you know, a nice multi-institutional study where you get data from everyone so you can increase your sample size and show with like a lot of power, hey, vary, varying your, you know, dinner time, you know, improve the behavior for like 30 lions, you know. But I think that we start with just focusing on every individual that we have because that's where our responsibility lies. That makes sense also because, you know, individuals can be weirdos. So (laughs) as long as you're helping them out, you know. (laughs) Makita's not just a lion, right? She's a female. She's an older female, right? So like where you are, welfare is this big transitional holistic thing that really means nothing because, (laughs) I mean, it just can't be defined because it's just for everyone, your welfare state day-to-day changes, right? Your welfare, your needs as a two-year-old are different than your needs as a 14-year-old. It's different for males and females, right? So it's just like this very, and also, it's not just that your needs change, it's that your actual welfare changes, right? So you have to constantly keep up with everyone. So, I mean, ideally, right, we would have a researcher at every habitat 24 hours a day, right, collecting data, right, to inform our care plans because everything changes all the time. But, um, you know, we just do the best we can do. Right. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, you're going to need a yeah. need a bigger intern pool for that. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, I'm curious, how much uh, do emerging technologies um, help with that kind of research? And are there any downsides to it that you find? Yeah, that's another great question. That's something that we were thinking about putting together an AZA session for next year. Um, is how you use technology to improve welfare. So, um, so again, I'm new to the game, so I'm just kind of getting familiar with things. Um, but it seems as as though it's incredibly important, but also not always that important. So, for example, having someone out there during the day watching a bear that's like, you don't need anything. You don't need to complicate it. That's a great way to collect data and it's really effective. Um, But what about the 12 hours of the day where we can't watch them because the zoo is closed and it's dark out, right? So that's when you have to start, when you start running into problems like that, you need to get creative. And so we've really relied on cameras um, for a lot of our studies to get uh, behind the scenes data and also night behavior. Um, we're relying on, um, we just started, we just started constructing, constructing a, a new Asia section. Oh, I um, didn't so we know have, that. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of construction going on. So we, uh, we talked with Disney cause Disney constantly is monitoring their noise levels and construction cause they have, you know, big entertainment facility as well. Um, so we followed their methods for using decibel meters, for monitoring sound, and we were correlating that with different types of activity budgets for animals across the zoo to see if there's any changes in behavior in response to noise. We haven't really seen anything, um, but it's good to monitor. Um, we have a um, we have some things that are looking at um, body heat. 
um, to see if that's an area that we can kind of think about bringing in for welfare. But that's as far as I've gotten. I haven't done anything beyond sound and cameras, but I know that it's a huge burgeoning area of um, of interest in this field. So hopefully that's something we can get some feedback on on the next day's AI. That's really cool. That's a good idea. Yeah. And I love, uh, I know you just said body heat too. The idea of infrared and seeing what's going on there is kind of cool. There's, yeah. there's a lot of cool tech out there now. There's a lot of cool tech. Yeah. So we just have, we're kind of seeing like, well, what are our, oh, also this is the most exciting thing is, um, you know, how can we use drones? Right. So you can use drones to monitor. We can't find sometimes we have this very large 40 acre grasslands habitat and we can't always find all our ungulates. So that could be really useful. Right. With the body heat technology, using the drones to see where everyone is. Um, You can use drones for providing different types of uh, enrichment if you can't get to your animals. So I think drones are also a nice uh, new area of work that could really improve animal welfare. Yeah, that's very cool. Awesome. I really like that. Um, how common is your type of position at, at zoos? Yeah, it doesn't seem very common. <laughs> it doesn't seem as common. Uh, you know, zoos are tend, tend to, you know, be strapped for cash. And I'm probably like the last, you know, you need you need a keeper, right? You need um, a registrar. Um, you need a vet, uh, you know, or at least to pay a vet to come. Um, so someone like me, I think is just, you know, just becoming necessary. I think when they did the, they, they rolled out this, um, the welfare mandate. I don't remember how many years ago now, I think it was five years ago where you have to do these annual welfare assessments on, on your animals. And so I think that it's becoming burdensome to institutions to fulfill the, and now with the welfare mandate, I, again, I'm not sure on what they're requiring for that, but I think that AZ is kind of making it where my position is going to become more and more important to different facilities because what I just got from the last AZA is that people, you know, it's like a lot of time to do however many animals are in your collection, do an annual welfare assessment on everyone. Like that's hard. And so, you know, part of my position is assisting with that. And I think it's going to become more and more important as as zoos go forward to have something like this where someone is assisting with monitoring welfare, you know, because I think sometimes it falls on at smaller institutions, it might fall on like the general curator or things like that. Um, But uh, but yeah, I think that someone who's focused specifically on research isn't really that common. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. But I think I think you're right. I think that with the um, especially like you said at the conference, it was all about that welfare. So uh, I think it's going to yeah. be cool to see see that kind of thing grow. Yeah. Um, how much do you uh, work with and, and what kind of relationships do you build with uh, the other staff at the zookeeper staff and um, management and whatever? Yeah, so I work really closely with all of them because I'm uh, looking at their animals. So um, so it's fun because it's a nice collaboration to get their insight into their animals. And we work, we just started, um, we just started a new study where we're uh, watching these indigo snakes and their reaction to different types of enrichment and housing, things like that. And so we installed these cameras on all their habitats in the back. And that required, um, requires a lot of collaboration between us and their team, right? Because they have to understand the needs of the study, right? And kind of hold to a protocol that we set. Um, they have to tell us about their needs for the snakes and how we can accommodate it within the design of the research question, things like that. So, um, so I work closely with um, everyone at the zoo uh, whenever I'm working on their animal. Awesome. And more mm-hmm. importantly, what are your relationships like with the animals at the zoo? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not out there as much as I probably should be. Uh, so I think the, normally um, when I'm getting an intern started, I'll go out with them a few times and, you know, we talk about how to collect data and I'm out there, but I don't 
go out there as much as I think, you know, I spent all those years watching baboons. Um, so it would be nice to keep watching animals to that level, but it takes, it's time, it's demand on time. So I don't really have any right now. There are some animals that I enjoy that I enjoy seeing, but I don't really spend much time with anyone. That's fair. But let's talk about those animals for a minute then, because I want I want okay. some people <laughs> who are listening. I mean, you, the work you're doing is incredibly important. This is incredibly cool. But I have yeah. found with my audience that if I don't at least, you know, get a couple stories about animals on there, then I get poked. Sure. And it's like, hey, we need to talk about animals. So okay. tell me about some of your faves there. Um, I really love our grizzly bear. I really, really love him. He is just goofy, and he's always digging holes, um, which makes everyone crazy. Um, but he's always, he just is always doing something ridiculous, and he loves engaging with guests. He walks over, and, like, he's very sociable and friendly and easygoing. Um, he always has to have something in his mouth when he's swimming. Like, he's just, like, this big, silly bear. He's a cartoon bear, and you just forget that he's a grizzly bear, and he's incredibly dangerous. <laughs> That's awesome. What's his I name? I love him. Ronan. Ronan. That's such a good name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he's awesome. Yeah, when you come, you should go see Ronan. Yeah, that that I will. I love the Arctic section there so much, too. Yeah, it's cool. My gosh. Yeah. The the polar bears and Arctic foxes, I think, are my favorite memory of the North Carolinas. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're cool. Yeah, the, they'll probably still be white when you come. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The The Arctic fox um, a- exhibit is you're just right there. Um, yes. It's yes, really you're cool. Like very you're really close. close. Yeah. Yes. I, yes. Yes. Yeah. They like guests and they engage with guests. Yes. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say I think I played with an Arctic fox there if I remember. Like through the glass, obviously. But sure. like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, there it's a very cool exhibit. Uh tell me about yeah. tell me about another fave at the zoo. Oh gosh. So um so we have so if we think back to draft, I'm um I was assisting with some data collection with our giraffe and I was behind the scenes uh, studying them and behind the scenes, you're very close with them. There's very little space. Um, And so the baby, Amelia, she's only, maybe she's three now, but she's still a baby, but she really loves people. And um, she wasn't part of the study, uh, but she kept coming up to me and giving me her butt because she wanted scratches because her keepers always scratch her butt. So she would just wouldn't. She was just always presenting to me, and I, <laughs> and it was just so cute. Like she just was dying to engage, but you know, I was trying to collect data, so I was just ignoring her the whole time. But <laughs> it was really sad. Oh, <laughs> that's really yeah, cute. She though. was cute. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah, she's very sweet. Yeah, nice. yeah. They're all. I mean, you know, they're very sweet. Um, the lion. The lions are harder. Um, they don't like me, so <laughs> they don't like me at all. Yeah. So, um, so they like would roar at me when I was back there and, um, just did, they did not like me, but I've had nice experiences. Everyone else seems to like me. That's good. That's good. It's good to be popular. Very friendly. Yeah. That's, that's really funny. Though. I can't <laughs> yes. imagine being okay. like, like, oh yeah, a lion is roaring at me right now. Cool. Yeah. Cool, it was cool, cool. really <laughs> like you feel your body, you feel your soul leave your body. Um, <laughs> because even though you know that they're behind mesh, it does not matter. Like the, it's terrifying. So I don't like going back there. <laughs> that's really funny yeah. to me. That, that makes sense. I don't sense, know what though. I did wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know. I did not know lion etiquette. I think lion etiquette is that you're supposed to make eye contact with them. And, you know, there was some, you know, species miscommunication because I'm used to primates where you're really not supposed to make eye contact. Right. And so I made them mad. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. I mean, that's got to be one of the hardest things as you're doing this research is just figuring out what uh, 
what is individual and what is each different species yes. and all of that stuff. Yeah. It's got to be a lot. It's so fun. Yeah, it's really fun because especially like with this indigo project that I just told you about, the indigo snakes, I've never worked with a snake ever. I don't know anything about snakes. Um, and I'm so lucky. I work right next to um, a herpetologist. Nice. And so she's, yeah. And so she's our zoo's um, wildlife biologist. And so she's working on the study with me and she just has informed, you know, I've just learned so much about snakes, right? It's so fun. It's great that I get to like learn about all these different animals. Very cool. So we met mm. at the AZA conference, the gift that mm. has just kept on giving. Uh, <laughs> yes. like there. Um, are you planning yeah. on going to uh, Columbus this year? I am. Nice. Do you go every year? Uh, this was my first year, but okay. just from the sheer awesome things that happened there, I'm planning on starting to go every it's, year. It was really fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I think Columbus will be great. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. Mm. Um, so what were you presenting on there? Yeah, so that was a study that we did. Again, it was like one of those multi-institutional projects where we gather data across, um, it ended up being around 41 facilities that have housed red wolves since um, we focused on the time period from 1999. Um, and we merged it with stud book information, uh, which, we, which we use to understand uh, survival rate. So like how long each individual wolf uh, lived for, and then looked at... Um, different types of husbandry conditions, right? Different types of enclosure size, diet, um, number of wolves housed, you know, all these different aspects of care and see how well that predicted survivorship. Um, so uh, that's a study that um, is currently under review and will hopefully uh, come out soon. Um, but yeah, so that was, it, it, these red wolves, um, they were extirpated from the wild, I believe in the 70s. Um, they were just having a really hard time. So the Fish and Wildlife Service brought them into zoos to manage, uh, to promote um, a, a breeding program, right? And until they're able to be released. And so since then, um, they formed an SSP, which now translate uh, moved into a safe program um, where they're just managing. It's around uh, like 240 wolves right now at various uh, institutions across the U.S. Um, until they're able to be released. And it's been going on now since the 70s. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, and that's that's uh, a huge number of red wolves because in the wild, aren't there like under 20? Yes. Yeah. There that's, are definitely, it's like 95% of the population is under human care. Sheesh. So it's, and that's a small number in human care. I mean, it's a great number compared to what it was, which is yeah. nothing. But, right. Yeah. Um, it's a small population. Sheesh. But it also means that this exitu population is the future of the red wolf, right? So, like, there is no future if you don't manage this population where it's thriving. So, that's why uh, studies where you really take a quantitative look at how do we take care of these animals um, are essential, right? Yeah. Otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so you're in North Carolina, which is where the the, the wolves are out in, in the wild. That's right. um, and I know that there's so much, I talk about this on my Zoo News episodes all the time, but there's so much controversy and there are so many people who are opposed to red wolves being introduced into North Carolina and people hunt them even though it is wildly yeah. illegal and all of this stuff. Um, right. What effect do you think having them at the zoo in North Carolina has on that? On what? On, um, I guess, on the the weird miseducation and and um, problems that people are having there. Do you think that having a, a population there where at least zoogoers can see and oh, hopefully sure. learn to see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's really useful. So in those visitor surveys that I talked about that I read, 
a lot, a, like a very large proportion, I don't remember the percentage, leave the zoo um, with an understanding of this program. So that, that that's telling me that our messaging is really getting across. And I know that our educators focus on it as well, which is probably more than our signage, right? That you have these educators out there with their cards telling the public, hey, like these wolves are important. You know, this is, they're endemic to this area. This is where they need to be, you know, and like discussing the history of the red wolf. And I know that our guests really walk away with an understanding of that program because they're filling out, they're, they're not knocking it out of the park on those exit surveys. Um, so I feel like it's really important to showcase them at this zoo, right, where they, right, where locals are going to come and then go back to their houses and talk about, you know, the importance of, you know, conserving the red wolf. Sweet. I love that. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about these surveys for a second. What kind of questions do you ask and how many ridiculous answers do you get? (laughs) How annoyed do you get at certain people? (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's fun. I wish that I could. I really talking about how bringing in technology, like if I when I have like more free time, I would like to look into ways to use like AI to go through these open-ended questions and like kind of sort them because right now I'm truly the one who is reading everyone's thoughts, you know, on the zoo and I just sit here and I'm reading them and then I have to categorize them, you know, based on their response. Um, and people really like to open up about their experience. So, and it's thousands of, you know, so it's thousands of things. Um, but yeah, it's, they're, they're really interesting. We ask questions about, so primarily we're interested, you know, did you think the prices were fair? Um, did you feel like our facilities were clean? Did you, uh, were you able to read our signage? Was it legible? You know, things like that. So it's more like your experience on the entertainment end. Um, but then sometimes, so, but then we also throw in questions like, do you feel like the North Carolina Zoo is, you know, promoting conservation of these animals in the wild? Do you feel like our animals are well cared for? So like the welfare of our animals, um, our international conservation, you know, did you walk away with an understanding of what we're doing? Things like that as well. Um, so we're trying to hit all the notes and then you can always sneak in a question or two, you know, if you have, you know, specific, you know, questions. So we just started doing uh, QR codes for Zoom apps. So we just like pop that in, you know, just to see like, hey, are you liking these these Zoom apps uh, through QR cards? So things like that. Um, and people do them. People do exit surveys. So I always wonder who goes on like, you know, Yelp and does a review, but people like to do it. They want to be heard. Yeah, I feel like social media has made people feel yes. like they, they their yes. opinion matters more. Yes. And I think that is good in some cases. Absolutely. Zoo surveys. I think it is yes. horrible in some cases. Um, <laughs> sure. yes. Trolls, you know. Right. But yeah. um, but I do think it's, it is what it is. And being able to use it for good effect with the zoo is awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. They're great. I bet you've read some doozies, though. I'm just going to yeah. leave it there, yeah. but I bet you read that. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's so funny. Like, nothing, nothing has – everyone just kind of says the same thing. No one's saying anything that's like, you know, like once or tw- once or twice you come across something that's like really absurd. Um, but typically it's, you know, what you said, that animal is lonely or I couldn't see – we have very large habitats, so they complain about visibility. Um, or it's too hot because our, we have a very big zoo and you have to walk. Um, so it's typically one of those. So it's nothing. People are not uh, not so shocking. That's fair. That's General. fair. Yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about the internal research, and I think that's really important. But you said you also help external researchers. How does mm-hmm. that work? Yeah. So we have um, it's it's called uh, 
an IACUC process. So we're not a strict IACUC. So typically when you're doing research with an animal, you have to go through a review board, um, either with the, like typically with the university um, that says like, yes, you're following like all the ethical guidelines, you know, you're considering this animal's like physical, you know, physical health, all these different kinds of things. So the zoo has this informal IACUC committee um, where um, four internal and one external staff review a proposal submitted by an external researcher. Um, and we just kind of discuss like, is there a merit? Um, can we, can we provide the staff to help execute? You know, if they're asking for urine, can we collect this urine? You know, can we participate in this study? Um, things like that. So then once that gets approved, then the PI works very closely with the animal team or with me to help facilitate the research. All right. That's really cool. That's it's great because cool. it's a way of like these zoos. I mean, I, I said this at the beginning that zoos are so important for so many reasons. And this is just providing this kind of understanding um, to the scientific community. I mean, that's just another way that we're really, you know, advancing science. Yeah, I love that. And there's I know there's so much collaboration between zoos. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, how much are you involved with that? Are you on any of the these list serves? I mean, obviously, you publish research and then it's out in the world. But like, do zoos reach out to you about um, welfare things? Or do they know that that you're a thing and that this exists? Or how does that work? Um, yeah, so so in terms of so when I'm talking about external researchers, those are mostly like professors at universities okay, gotcha. or scientists. Like those are people who are like, hey, we want to understand how, you know, a polar bear metabolizes fat or like how how strong their bite is. You know, can we work with the zoo to test this um, in terms of working with other AZ facilities? Um, yeah. So that's something that um, so I'm you know, you have like all those different committees that I'm trying to I'm again, I'm new. So I'm trying to join as much as possible and be a part of that community so that when um, opportunities for collaboration come up, they think of us as, you know, as a research institution. Okay, cool. That makes sense. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I just I love the collaborative nature between zoos. And I know like I'm yeah. I've been invited into a bunch of like there's like a red panda keepers Facebook group that I get to be part of and, sure. and stuff like that. Um yeah. and like the Sandcat SSP has a group that I'm in and a, a FUSA cool. group. And it's just cool yeah. seeing them work um, you know, alongside each other. So I'm sure even if there are times that you're not contacted personally, the mm-hmm. stuff that you then teach the keepers and they start doing then trick into other zoos through through those methods and i think yeah, that's very cool awesome. yeah 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 it's it's really nice how it is interesting so since joining a zoo i feel like i'm i'm coming to the zoo with like very new eyes because i've never been a part of this community but it is really interesting in all the ways that people have figured out how to promote like communication between facilities you know so that like all the giraffe keepers are like in a face it's typically facebook groups um but they all have like text chains and things like that so that they can discuss because it is really hard to publish things when you don't have research staff or when you have a you know just a case study of one animal but it's nice if like someone from columbus can text someone down in texas and say like hey we found this browse to be really effective if you want to try it you know so it's nice to have that kind of communication with each other otherwise it's isolating and no one learns you know, learns from each other. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, and then let's talk about the uh, the education side of things that you were talking about um, at yeah. the beginning here. Um, yeah, so I oversee an overnight uh, an overnight camp here at the zoo. So we get to sleep in tents at the zoo nice. on site, um, and it's for middle school and high school students. 
And every year we're creating different curriculum because we just find different ways to improve it. So it's really different year to year, um, but it tends to focus on uh, research methods, uh, field research methods. So um, so this year we're going to focus on how to use iNaturalist, um, how to use Merlin, you know, the Merlin app, um, how to use binoculars when you're out in the field, things like that to try to give them a sense of, and then of course talk about our work that we do internationally, because then that kind of gives them a sense of different types of field. So we do a lot of conservation work abroad. Um, so we try to review that with them as well. That's really cool. That sounds mm-hmm. really, really important. That's kind of yeah. a different kind of education, uh, I guess, an angle at education than you hear from a lot of facilities. Um, oh, is it? Yeah. It, just in terms it? of focusing yeah. more on the, the conservation work and the research side of things. Right. Yeah. 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 So we have other we have tons of other camps, right, you know, right. where they're do where they're learning more about like the husbandry and the keeper end. Um, so this one was just designed to learn to understand research methods. I really like that. That's really cool. Yeah. Do you enjoy yeah. sleeping at the zoo? Um. Yes. Yes. It's generally it goes it goes well. Um. You know, like you've done it so many times that it eventually you're just like okay, like let's you know get this going. Um. But you can like w- if we sleep over by the lions, you can hear them roaring in the night. You hear the chimps in the morning. Um. They're, it's very noisy over there. Um. And people one time before I got here. Um, when my supervisor was running the camp, she would have everyone sleep out by, I don't know if you remember our grasslands habitat. Yes. So you would like wake up. It's like you're on safari. Um, so there are like lots of places where you can sleep where it feels like you're camping out somewhere very wild. That's really cool. I love that. Mm-hmm. I've, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've slept at the uh, San Diego Zoo Safari Park twice. Oh, wow. Um, How's that? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, they do this, this incredible roar and snore safari and it's, it's yeah. wonderful. Um, yeah. but uh, other than that, every time I've tried to see, uh, sleep at a zoo, eventually night security catches me and gets me out. So it's, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> now that is Fair very enough. cool though. Yeah. I think it would be awesome just putting this out into the world, but, um, to look into maybe doing an adult based, uh, research, you know, type. Yeah. Thing. People have asked about that. Oh. A lot of teachers ask about that because teachers want to learn about it. Uh, they want to learn about the methods and then they want to, and then if we do it with the teachers, then they can take it back to their classroom and talk mm-hmm. about it um and i can't it's something that we are exploring i think that just because it's only me that it's too hard to navigate but i think that if we eventually expand our staffing that's something that we can look into as well yeah that makes sense because i just mm-hmm. i i always think you know i get why zoos do so much children's programming i do it's mm-hmm. very important mm-hmm. but also like having an audience that is mostly adults like it's, sure. this really isn't a kid's podcast kids sometimes listen to it but this isn't you know and, yeah. and thousands of people listening every week and reaching out and whenever i do a zoo news thing saying like oh this cool camp opportunity is coming up i always hear from people that are like i wish i could do that and i, I actually have the money to do it <laughs> that's actually that's a very good point <laughs> yeah it's an untapped market but we we've talked about it and um i can't remember yes i think it's just staffing that makes kind of sense kept us yeah yeah because cool. people are more likely to sign their kids up yeah no doubt no doubt we got to work on that yeah. Zoos exactly. are not just for children. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. But now I hear you. Very cool. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to tell my listeners about your job? No, I mean, I think that, I mean, so again, like I'm new, but it's just not not about my job in particular, but just the, how important zoos are to conservation <laughs> and generating um, an education and generating that empathy and connectedness to wildlife that you wouldn't necessarily get in other places. Um, they're, they just are a, the most mission-based zoos, right, are there to educate, right, and pull the guest in. And just when you go to a zoo, try to pay attention to the signage, try to pay attention to the educators and 
just see what you can take away from the experience. It's, I mean, it's a very curated process. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of signage, um, I'm actually, so I'm working on my master's right now and, um, yeah, working on a, uh, master's in biology focused on conservation, trying to, to keep it very zoo based. It's through project dragonfly and the, the project that I'm looking at right now, I haven't like started to write it up or anything yet. I'm a, I'm a Mm -hmm. baby master's student. Um, but is all about zoo signage and I have done some research into it already and such. Um, do you do anything looking at any of that kind of stuff or are you more just focused on the welfare? Yeah. So I luckily got in, I can't, well, not luckily, but I came in during COVID. So we have a study that we're currently doing where we assess um, guest experience without educators and with educators, which I know has been done before, but it's going to kind of focus our understanding of how effective our signage is because it's hard to kind of separate um, at different habitats. Like, well, you walked away understanding our Red Wolf program, but is it because our signage is really good or because our educators are really good? Um, So we're going to do a little pre-post study on um, guest experience in the zoo um, with and without the educators, which will indicate something about how effective the signage is. I think generally people don't, I think that the consensus is that they don't really read the signage, but that if you have a keeper talk or someone there engaging with them, that's really when they walk away with an understanding. Is that right? That That's what I have seen I like so far. So I actually, in the literature that I read before I did my own little study on it, and it was a very yeah. brief thing for one class, but um, yeah. in the literature, I've seen things that say that people read at least some signage as much as 90%. Some say like 60 to 70%. Oh, okay. My experience was like 12% on a yeah, good day. Right. Yeah. yeah, it That's was unfortunate. I, I yeah. <laughs> have started to notice that more people seem to be engaging with um, you know, screens if you can if you can make it a little interactive or something like that. But this yeah. is all very preliminary data that, you know, I need to do a lot more research into. But this I find it fascinating and I think it it's is. really interesting. It is. And I think that it's honestly like the point of the zoo. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, that's what you want. I mean, there, obviously, conservation action for your animals. Right. We do a lot of international conservation. Right. On behalf of all the animals that we house. Um, but also educating the public is so important. And how do you know if it's effective? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, are there any conservation organizations that you'd like to give a shout out to? We do a lot of our own conservation using smart technology. I don't know. Oh. Well, then talk about that. that. That sounds great. Oh, yeah. They pioneered it here. So, um So my colleague, I can't remember what his exact position is, but um, he is on some kind of steering committee with this technology where they're giving um, rangers these uh, rugged smartphones so that they can um, track different types of, I mean, the focus is poaching events um, in the field to help get response, you know, get the rangers to have response time, uh, to minimize response time out there. Um, so it's obviously um, out there to decrease poaching, right, is like an anti-poaching system that they have. Um, and so that kind of, that system, our partners, um, but we're one of the leading partners that helped develop the technology. And so I think that that's a really cool thing that we are a part of that we facilitate. Um, it's with um, WCS and I can't, and I think Panthera is a part of it as well. Makes sense. That's really cool. I love that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Yes. Yes. So you told me about that. And I had one that came to mind immediately where um, I was, you know, out in the field um, and following those baby monkeys around. 
Um, and I was, you know, very invested in whoever I was watching. You have to watch one animal at a time for, you know, you have uh, your observation period, so you can't look away. You're taking notes rigorously. I was working really hard on it and I felt something fall on me and there were three kids above me in a tree and they were just pooping all over me. <laughs> and I was just covered and I was in the field and I'm an hour away from my house. Oh. I don't have anything with me. And you walk kilometers every day. I must have been like 18 kilometers from the car and I just had to live like that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for taking the time sure. to do this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you for talking to me. It was nice to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one. I'll let you know uh, if I am able to make it down to the, to the zoo soon. Yes, I'm, please I'm planning do. To. Cool. Please do. Awesome. I would love to meet. All right. Okay. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. Well, there you have it, folks. And I got to say, I really loved that episode. I think that Dr. Lynch's position is so cool. And I feel like this is one of those things where I could just have her on the podcast every year to tell me about the amazing research being done, especially since it is so impactful for the welfare of zoo animals. And um, we would get a good listen every time. She would just need to uh, up her, her number of uh, poop stories. Poop story. But let's be honest, I'm guessing she has more than just that one. Uh, yeah, so anyway, I'd like to say thank you to my uh, Red Panda level patrons, Laura Shank and Kristen Dickey, and actually to all of my patrons, because you're all awesome. Just not awesome enough to have me say your name, because that's what you get when you're a Red Panda patron. Just kidding. You're, you're, you're awesome. I love you. Don't, don't not be my patron. Anyway, if you'd like to be a patron and get uh, either your name said or apparently verbally abused by me, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Safari. And um, yeah, remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Safari podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.